Welcome to the latest session of Randos Read. Uh, tonight we've got uh, four randos reading Atlas Shrugged. We're on part one, chapter two, The Chain. And this is that chapter where uh, at his mills, Hank Reardon pours the first seed of, of Reardon metal, reflects on his life as he walks home. Once at home, he's frustrated and disappointed by the people present, his mother, his brother Philip, wife Lillian, his friend Paul Larkin. Hank agrees to Lillian's plan for an anniversary party and she gives a, and Andy, Andy gives a check to Philip for the Friends of Global Progress. And that's just the highest level summary. Now we can dive I in. He, and... uh, I thought he gave it to him in cash. Oh yeah, that was a, yeah. that was one of the fun things. Is like after <laughs> after a, a very cringy uh, appeal, uh, Hank's like feeling very magnanimous. He's like, sure, I will I will cover it. And uh, yeah, he followed up with, oh yeah, can you tell your person to give it to me in cash because we wouldn't want to have. We wouldn't, your name we wouldn't associated want to have to our... admit that we got any money from you. Yeah, you're you're not viewed favorably. We, we want your money, though. Yeah, we'll totally take your money, but you won't get any credit for having given it to us. So that would be the second time in the chapter. Like, the first time he, he brought home, uh, for those who uh, are just remembering this from having read it maybe before, uh, he he's just poured the first heat of the metal, made a, uh, a bracelet, a chain bracelet, out of it. So this is the, the first heat of his newly you know developed metal it's a gigantic achievement he's going to go home and give this gift to his wife and um she basically turned her nose up at it in disdain insulted him uh and it and didn't really connect at all with what was making it wonderful and i i so wanted him just to say oh well it doesn't sound like you really like it oh no problem and take it back yeah and the same would go for the money. It's like, oh, it doesn't really sound like you're you want my help. My money. Yeah. Uh, so so fine. I w I don't want to burden you with that. I I'll just keep the money. No problem. Yeah. Well, but I mean that that's a core element of you know without spoiling I think future events, Reardon's character arc. The entire point is that given what he knows and believes at this point in time, he's not morally able to do that. Yep. Because he is granting um, sort of a, a status and a legitimacy to mor moral standards held by other people that he doesn't accept or understand, but he thinks they do, you know, understand them and, you know, are committed to to them in the same way that he is committed to his moral principles and that that warrants a certain amount of consideration. Yeah. Also, uh, uh, a few, t uh, yeah, very sacrificial. He, more than a couple times, he sees people in their uh, attempts to jab or strike out at him or manipulate him. And they're like, uh, he's like, oh, well, obviously this person uh, isn't feeling good about themselves or whatever. And uh, they know that if I, I, I could squash them like a bug with one little uh, response, but uh, I won't do that. And so they'll know that I'm, uh, I actually appreciate them or something like that. It's like, ah, uh, no. Well, that's... I mean, to, to pull in, you know, a concept from, uh, you know, Rand's abstract philosophy, it kind of feels like what Reardon is doing is he's acting as though his family members are honestly mistaken. 
Yes. <clears throat> when, um, in in fact, um, I think they are not. That they are actually intellectually or psychologically dishonest. It's not that they have misunderstood the nature of what he is doing or, you know, what he's accomplished, you know, what his value is. No, they resent it and him. It's, yeah. It's really toxic. This yeah. is, this is a, a very toxic relationship. I mean, Lillian is striking out at him regularly. Yeah, I mean, God, I just, I, I want to slap every, I mean, every single person living in that house other than him should be an immediate DNC. DNC. Uh, you know, do, do not, not contact. Con oh, do not contact. Ah, yeah. You know, it's like, so, you, know, you, you go full no contact with, uh, you know, relatives who are that, that horrid. Well, yeah. Yeah. And, and yet he's, yeah, it's like he's, he's very generous, tries to take care of them, wants to be accommodating. He's a he's a productive engine. The guy is just you know he's an Elon Musk kind of guy, and they really really hammer him. Yeah, it's interesting today. People seem to be increasingly twigging on to the notion of you know the person with narcissistic personality disorder. You know, how do you deal with a relative who's a a narcissist? Um, I think the only answer I've heard is run away. Well, generally speaking, yeah, ultimately, um, you know, you can't sanction them. You can't deal with them as though they're, you know, honest or offering a positive value. You have to ultimately you have to separate. You, know, you have to do what we would call non-sanctioning. You know, it's like, you know, ooh, you know, it's like it's evil. Don't get it on me kind of thing. Um, <laughs> but um, <clears throat> one of the things that's interesting to me is that these characters are obviously toxic. Um, but I don't think they're narcissists. It's like they're, it's a different variety of that. You know, it, it's, it's a moral epistemological thing that they're doing, not a psychological, you know, neurotic one. Yeah. It's, I wonder. Um, I mean, that, that's not something that would have been relevant when Rand wrote the novel, but I think it, it's no. kind of interesting today that you know people have these these mental categories for toxic relatives. Um, you know, it, and you know these characters are kind of like that, but kind of not. It's. I have met, it's like uh, Rand is doing a magnified, clarified, sharpened version of some things that I guess I've seen, where you have uh, a relative who knows how to act polite, but there's a jab, a barb, always being deployed, always trying to knock someone off balance to to just push them down. And yeah, mm -hmm. and, and for no good, for, for what gain? It's like, uh, okay, there's something in yeah. your background that makes it so you need to do this? Yeah. What the hell? Yeah. Well, I mean, in Randian terms, I think the, the narcissist is definitely a second-hander. Um, you know, they get, you know, a lot of their, their sense of self-worth and, you know, their sense of personal existence out of the way in which they can manipulate and exercise power over the consciousness of other people. You know, mm -hmm. 
having having to sit in a room alone not being the center of attention is psychological death to a narcissist and that's obviously you know a variation of what rand would call being second-handed um definitely yes hmm let's see some uh on a different yeah oh sorry go ahead yeah i i was i'm amused to note that rand is doing something similar with the chapter titles in the first and second chapter. Um, you mean as far as referencing something specific? Oh, you know, where there's, within a, there's a, the, a concrete uh, thing and then there's the abstract And then there's thing. the abstract thing. Yeah. Yes. So, so the chapter titles are actually puns. Yeah. So in the, in the first one, we had the theme. Halley's Fifth Concerto was the concrete. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's the abstract, which is, uh, I guess we decided, uh, who is John Galt? Yeah. The opening and the closing, and and this generally one, the, yeah the the overarching theme of the entire novel is really kind of encapsulated in the, the character, interactions in the first chapter in microcosm. Absolutely. Yeah, and and, and you could call it the alpha and omega if you wanted to. <laughs> yes. And then, so then here in the chain, you, yeah. No, sorry, you, go ahead. Got a physical chain. And uh, there's. One abstract tossed out, uh, one of Lillian's barbs was, oh, how appropriate, a chain. You know, it's like, a, like, you're, like you're chaining us up. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, the chain whereby he keeps us all in bondage. But yes. um, I think what Rand is really going for is the chain that's keeping Hank bound. Mm -hmm. you know, there's the also world, arguably the, the a third level here, you know, which is you know, the chain is in the old ball and chain. Oh, <laughs> that, yeah, okay, that there would be is the extra yeah. pun version, yes, which I think would exist, what was it, 60, 70 years ago when she was writing this? When was it actually being written? Hmm. Uh, in the, mostly in the, the 40s and uh, first half of the 50s. Wow. Um, I think she was planning it, you know, in sort of the latter half of the 40s. Um, hmm. It was published in 57, and she spent a couple of years working on the, the speech chapter. So mm -hmm. I guess she would have had uh, had to have had the rest of the novel mostly done, you know, prior to that, you know, by 1955 or so. Cool. Um, <clears throat> so, but yeah, but yeah I... you know, it's it's interesting, you know, Lillian takes the position that, you know, basically it's all of them in his home who are chained by, by Reardon. Whereas I think from the reader's perspective, it's pretty clear that, you know, they are in fact attempting to uh, chain him down. Yeah. In some way. Um, With these interesting, uh, this interesting psychological um, positioning. Blackmail. Blackmail. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's really dysfunctional, and um, it, it actually, I was almost squirming physically because it's like, wow, this uh, absolute productive genius is at their mercy for no good reason. Yeah, I'm also reminded of that line from the, towards the end of the Fountainhead, where Winand observes that uh, a leash is uh, just a rope with a noose on both ends. <laughs> 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 <clears throat> yeah. <clears throat> so, uh, yeah, 
now I'm looking forward to uh, the coming chapters to see if uh, if the pattern holds of the uh, sort of the pun as you as you pointed out. Mm -hmm. I think you know, I, I don't think that, every that, chapter in the book has a title like that, but um, even if only say the first section played that game, yeah. it would be really amusing. Well, just going from memory, I think the chapter three has an element of that. Uh, top um, and the bottom, I can see the title now, and yeah, yes, I, I can think of the concrete that I uh, is, yeah, is kind of. I, I remember that that has both a sort of a physical and a a philosophical component to it, as I recall. Yes, um, and I, I think she came up with the the, the title way before okay. the lingo that a lot of uh, people listening might be thinking of right now, with tops and bottoms. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I, I don't think that's really applicable. That's not. That is not applicable. <laughs> but uh, you know, some of the other, the other stuff. You know, like chapter five. Yeah. Once again, it could be. Huh. Yeah, I'm not sure how that'll work. I think. Um, yeah, that's probably when the, one of the events that's already been talked about comes to pass. All right, so uh, I have Diana's questions if we want to uh, circle around different elements of what we've already been talking about, as well as uh, the uh, uh, teacher's guide that we got from ARI. Uh, ARI recommended learn? Diana's book. Let's see. Yeah, what did we learn? Um, all right, so here's a few questions. Uh, oh, here's a mystery. What does Paul Arkin's warning to Hank about Hank's man in, man in Washington mean? What exactly is a man in Washington? A lobbyist. Yeah, a lobbyist. And uh, it, Paul Arkin uh, was uh, kind of cagey. He, he went there for the purpose of warning Hank to check on his man in Washington, make sure that he was lined up. And uh, Hank is he's, he's busy being productive and kind of shrugs it off. But uh, Well, basically what Larkin is doing is he's, he, he, he's straddling the fence. Yeah, he's insisting we on your we won't, friend. We won't know that until the next chapter, yeah. but that's what he's doing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like it, a lot of Washington people, he's a bit of a snake, and right now he's trying to tell himself he's being a friend. Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting that, yeah, I mean, Larkin clearly knows or senses that something is up, and he is saying less than he knows. Yeah. I'm thinking in a in a context like this, a friend would actually tell their friend the danger that's perceived. Mm -hmm. Even if he doesn't know, it's like if he if he only suspects, he will yeah. be clear about what his suspicions are, and you know of the epistemological yeah. status of those suspicions. You, you could say I, I I've I've been around uh, the Washington swamp, and I here are the maneuverings I'm seeing, and that makes me suspicious of this uh, this kind of a danger. Maybe uh, keep your eyes open. Watch your back. Call your Washington man. Something uh, is up. Yeah, but he didn't do that. <laughs> he just said the words, I'm your friend. And uh, hey, you should maybe check on your Washington guy. And maybe that's enough to make his guilt less or something. You know, I don't know why I'm thinking of this, but I am thinking of... John Kerry having that uh, rock, ballad rock performer whose name presently escapes me. Uh, 
performing after the mass murders in Paris about 10 years ago with that unctuous smile on his face. Uh, I mean, if there ever was a, uh, a Randian villain, John Kerry certainly fits the bill. Hmm. You've got a friend. Oh, oh. Um, James Taylor, that's who it was. Yeah. He's just going, that was kind of gross. You just, you've just seen almost 100 people murdered gratuitously by people that your policies have empowered and you're going to have some washed up balladeer from 40 years ago saying, you are, you've got a friend. I mean, it's just nauseating to look at it. And he's got that smug, carry smile as he looks on so avuncularly. You're just like, God, you're a loser. <laughs> anyway. He's one of our betters at, at Davos. <laughs> just wonderful. All right, so let's but, see. But yeah, I mean, it's that that same unclarity, you know, the, the it's like the communication version of what we saw with James Taggart in the first chapter. You know, the um, the refusal to be pinned down to anything specific. Yeah. Right? It's like Taggart is like that in, you know, his conversation oh. and his problem solving, you know, with... Mm -hmm with Dagny on, on business issues and Larkin is like it in his communication. It's like, he's not going to be, be pinned down. In fact, it, you could sort of compare the Larkin Reardon exchange with the, the Dagny um, Taggart, you know, Jim Taggart exchange where, you know, in both cases you have one character who knows about a problem and is trying to bring it to the attention of the other one say there there's something you know there's something wrong here you need to know about it you need to take action you know in Dagny's case it's um appraising Jim of the uh the state of the Rio Norte line and its importance to the the continued uh successful operation of uh Taggart Transcontinental in the state of Colorado uh and in this case it's um you know in the Larkin case it's whatever is up with Hank's man in Washington, but the positions are reversed, right? In, in chapter one, Dagny is being very clear about the problem and the person she's trying to present the problem to is um, refusing to hear it. And in this one, yeah. you know, Larkin is trying to present the problem while simultaneously not presenting the problem. And Reardon is in effect you know, refusing to guess, you know, he, he's taking the, um, the obfuscatory verbiage that Larkin feeds him at face value. Mm -hmm. You know, rather than trying to tease out implications. Well, in, in, in both cases, I think it was so that if there was any revelation that was made, it was on the other person have made it. So now Dagny had no problem with that, but what Larkin was angling for was having Reardon draw the conclusions without him actually basically playing cover his ass. That's what he's yeah, doing. Yeah, you know, Lar so Larkin wants to be able to, you know, in effect, you know, be able to say other people, I didn't tell him. 
but he also wants to be able to say to Hank, I, I tried to warn you. I tried to warn you. Yeah. Yeah. He's a, uh, it's sleazy. Uh, I'm reacting to what I'm, I know is coming. <laughs> it's like yeah, really sleazy. Uh, it's uh, one of the tragic things here for me is that uh, you have this guy who has worked incredibly hard, unrelenting effort to come up with this alloy and he's ready to celebrate and he doesn't have anybody to celebrate with. His, nobody in his family recognizes what he's pulled off. Yeah, they can barely even, uh, you know, tolerate being, uh, having it mentioned that it happened even. And it's like, well, yeah. he doesn't, he's not psychologically visible. Um, his achievements aren't, that's, that's, that's kind of rough. I mean, he's still a human. I mean, I don't know how much of this goes beyond the scope of this particular chapter, but it's worse than them being oblivious to the, the effort and the value. Oh yeah. They actually belittle it that, that he's put in. Yeah. It's, it's cheap in it. They are aware of the fact that he's put a great deal of effort into it. They are aware of the fact that it is important to him. And that's precisely why they attack it. Yeah. They're, let's see, they berate uh, his passion for the mills. Um, They belittle the meaning of of them. He uh, offers this priceless gift of the bracelet. She cheapens its meaning. Over and over, he's being hammered psychologically. It's a very consistent line, yeah. You know, but at the same time, it's not, you know, and this is, again, consistent with that whole, you know, they want, you know, things and yet they don't. You know, they're perfectly willing to take the ultimate benefit, um, you know, that comes from his work at the mills. You know, they're willing to take the money. They're willing to, you know, throw a big the wedding prestige. anniversary yeah. party. They're willing to take, you know, his ten thousand dollar, you know, donation to, um, uh, you know, Phillips. Uh, it's like uh, you know, Friends of Progress or Friends of like Progress that. organization, whatever they're called. Um, you know, it, it's not like, you know, they're saying, no, you know, it, it's all it's all dirty. We we want nothing to do with it. Um, you know, they're they're perfectly happy to live off of it, you know, and to benefit from it while simultaneously attacking and belittling and condemning it. Yeah. They want the ends, but not the means. They, they, they despise the means, him, the process, uh, all of that. They, they just want the... Uh... Yeah, the goodies at the end. The the effects without the causes. Yeah. At least I think that's what it looks like at this point. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, although I, it, uh, man, the it's it's more than just enjoying being happy with the outcomes. They they are really attacking him. <laughs> it's, yeah. Well, it's, and it, they, it's an interesting they hate, question. They hate the source of the things yeah. that they're depending on. Yeah. Well, and, it, and it's an interesting question, you know, which is actually a stronger motivation for them. You know, the, the desire for the goodies or the hatred of the, the source, you know, it's like, do, ah, do, do, can't do they tell. love, the, do they love the egg more than they hate the goose? <laughs> I can't tell at this point. It's pretty nasty, though. Um, let's see. Other random questions. 
Why does Hank want a neon sign reared in life above the days in the past that have led him to this present moment? This is while he was going home and reflecting on uh, how he got to here. I mean, obviously, because he suffers from narcissistic personality disorder. What other reason? Yeah, he's a total narcissist, yeah. (laughs) Hmm. Well, I mean, obviously, this is a case of him looking for a certain level of psychological visibility, even if it's only himself that appreciates mm-hmm. what he's accomplished at this point. Yeah, he's, he's proud of his accomplishments and uh, what made those possible. He's proud of too. Yeah. It's, well, it's all uh, something that could be under the sign of Reardon. Yeah. Well, I think it's also interesting to point out that, um, all of the things that he's talking about, you know, putting this sign on top of are his productive endeavors. And it tells you something about where he puts, you know, those endeavors in his life. You know, he, he's not putting, you know, the day he got married, you know, he's, he's not sticking, you know, that as a thing under Reardon life. Yeah. It's not making that appearance. No, he, Um, he has a, he, uh, He's he's a Randian hero, but um, he's he's the kind of Randian hero that uh, has a definite need for growth. There's something something wrong, and it has to change. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think most of Rand's heroes are are like that in in one respect or another. I mean, even Rourke was like that. That's that's true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, it just makes me uh, think of one of the complaints people have is that I was like, oh, there are all these perfect you know, Nietzschean Superman. And it's like, no, no, this is not a perfect man. He is not happy. He's not, everything's not perfect here. Yeah. He's, he's, he's making he a deep problem. Yeah. He's making some really bad mistakes. Um, yeah. And I think it's, it's going to be interesting as we work through the novel, comparing and contrasting uh, Dagny and Reardon because we know they're going to be interacting a lot. And both of them have learning and development arcs of different kinds. Yeah. Um, there, there are some things that Dagny understands that Reardon doesn't. Um, and I'm it, not sure if there's it, anything that Reardon understands that Dagny doesn't. Um uh is it fair to say that they're both um victims of a mind body split and maybe they're choosing different sides i don't think dagny really suffers from a mind body split i mean think about you know this is running a little bit yeah yeah Yeah, i think you're right the the whole discussion that she and reardon have about the nature of sex yeah right reardon's got a massive mind body split on the issue of sex and she doesn't. And she doesn't. Well, someone's playing of a jaunty tune. Yeah, that's uh, my elderly father's uh, backup device that I use to assist him te- technically. <laughs> ah. So, um, yeah, she she doesn't have that kind of a a split in that area she uh yeah and and we uh, it, huh yeah 
it's not going to be that straightforward. We'll have to yeah. have to piece this together as we go, I guess. Yeah. I think she has a similar kind of lack of real concern about sort of moral approval or disapproval from others that Reardon has. She's like, I know what needs to be done. I know what's right. I will do it. I don't care about other people. Yeah. Um, she doesn't accept their standards. I think he might. And, and no. just, just says, I'm going to, I'm going to focus on these other things. Yeah. Um, I should feel that way, but I don't, maybe that's my problem. In, yeah. in her case, she's like, no, I shouldn't feel that way. And I don't. And fuck you. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, she still at some level grants a, a sort of legitimacy. Mm, yeah. You know, to, to the other side in the same way that Reardon does. Um, in both their cases, well, maybe they're just so productive. They think, well, I'm going to focus on what really makes a difference and I'm going to overwhelm, you know, this, this nuisance. Mm -hmm. I, I think, I think where Dagny runs afoul of the other side. And I think this is why her recognition that, and I am trialing out spoilers here. I think her problem is that she thinks the other side actually values the same thing she values. They're just mistaken in how to go about it. I think there's a lot of truth to that. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that's where that's her weakness. Whereas in other words, she thinks that they're mistaken um, but they value the same things. Reardon thinks that he needs to value the things they value, and the fact that he can't bring himself to do that means he's flawed, not them. That sounds that sounds pretty yeah. right. Yeah. yeah, I think both of them are cutting themselves with Hanlon's razor. Uh, in other words, they are attributing to ignorance what should be attributed to malice yes <laughs> it's like they, they're they're refusing to attribute malice because they think they can explain what they're seeing by stupidity yeah. yes um which is benevolent but it's leaving them as uh suckers in well, a lot of cases you know, yeah i mean hanlon's razor is a useful tool but it's at the same time you have to admit Sometimes people actually are malicious. Yep. Just, just not nearly as often as, as we, as we think. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's not something you should leap to as the first explanation, but it is an explanation. And sometimes it is the right one. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, but I, yeah. Um, what you just said, Carl, that definitely resonates with me. That I'll be watching for that pattern as we go. Let's see. And, it, and it's kind of a hard. I mean, I probably I probably err on the say on the side of uh, assuming that it is in fact an error. I, I think there are more bastards in the world than you guys do. <laughs> <laughs> um. You know, uh, I have to say the uh, the last half decade of watching 
just the shenanigans everywhere. I, I, um, I was far too uh, benevolent. Uh, I, I was, I, I gave, I used Hanlon's razor too much. There are a lot of assholes out there that are really malicious. They're doing bad things. <laughs> yep. And and the thing is, is that you can't. Maybe that goes with a crumbling society. I don't know. Well, I, I I think what we're seeing is the big reveal. I don't think anyone substantially changed. I think all that's happened is that the masks have come off. Because I don't think that the majority of the COVIDians woke up one morning in uh, April of 2020 and said, I'm going to be a totalitarian henceforth and forever onward. No, they were totalitarians before. I think they just saw their chance and said, hey, this is it. Yeah. And acted accordingly. I guess I have seen a lot of little dictators out there where they have a chance to lord something over others and they do. Yeah, I think it's probably a little bit more complicated than that in the sense that I think that there are probably some people out there who maybe had the urge but would not have acted on it themselves had they not seen other people acting on it and getting away with it and being praised for it. Oh, yeah, there's definitely a cascade that happened. Yeah, so I, it I, was horrible. I, yeah. yeah, so I think that there there's a sense in which, you know, there was an opportunity that allowed people to act on impulses that they might otherwise have suppressed, get praised for it, you know, get, you know, power and, you know, fame and influence for it. And those things then attract other people in their wake and you get a cascading growth effect. Um, and, and that's a, that's a, an important ingredient is the, um, positioning of, of the lever they're using as morally praiseworthy. They, they, they've done it with, uh, like, uh, the climate change goof goofiness. They did it here with the COVID ESE over and over. You can see things being positioned as like, no, this is, this is what the, the, the right, good and true way to go. And that puts people in a position to, um, boy, uh, really smack you over the head with their goodness. Well, I think it's the same impulse that you would have seen in the religious persecutions of the past. Yep. Totally the same. <laughs> yeah. 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 I think my, my point is that, you know, it's not like all of these people were, you know, in, in 2010 sitting around, you know, explicitly scheming, you know, how can, you know, how can I push the United States into a totalitarian you know, no, it's probably more of a crime of opportunity. Yeah. But yeah, <laughs> but there definitely wasn't anything in them that stood against that in a principled way. And when the current started moving in that direction, you know, they were like, "Sure, I'll paddle that way." Yeah, it's it's looks like the people who are like, "Oh yeah, what would you have done?" You know, in the rise of this horrible thing in history. I think we've seen some examples of it recently. It's like, oh yeah, a lot of people, they just totally be on board. Yeah. Even though they don't have the capacity yeah, to, to start it. 
Yeah. Well, and to loop this whole discussion back around to the book. No. <laughs> the yeah. Book? I know. Um, I mean, that question of sort of moral leverage and moral disarmament is going to be an interesting one to keep in mind as we work our way through the book. Definitely. You know, better people um, who are made ineffective in various ways because they do not have a solid moral foundation on which to take a stand. You know, people who may be middling, but who get pulled in a worse direction. Um, you know, because they don't have a, uh, a firm underpinning. I mean, Larkin might actually be somebody like that. Oh, yeah. Uh, the, the current goes a little bit the wrong direction and he just ends up in the wrong place because he, mm. yeah, he doesn't have much of a rudder. Yeah. Or maybe some of the, uh, the railroad employees that we saw in chapter one who, uh, you know, weren't willing to take any responsibility for dealing with the, uh, the, the broken signal. Mm -hmm. uh, yep. Sorry. I'm, I'm looking through uh, Diana's supplemental questions to see if there's any here that we ought to chew on a little bit drill down um let's see when hank feels regret for thinking of his wife in the abstract as opposed to thinking of lillian concretely why does he feel remorse for that regret what does that response reveal about his marriage and about his character you know i think that goes back to the point that um I don't remember if it was you or Carl was making about how Reardon feels guilty about not accepting sort of the conventional moral standards. I think that was more fact, Carl. Yeah. Yeah. It's like Reardon has his standards that he lives by, but he does not consider them to be moral. He, he gives the, the label of morality to the conventional view that condemns him for the things that he loves and therefore considers himself to be a, a moral blackguard. And so like in this case, you know, the regret is basically him rejecting, you know, Lillian as not worthy of the gift that he uh, intends to give her. But, that is an evaluation that comes from his personal standards, not from what he views as the moral perspective. And therefore, you know, his emotions um, stem from his personal standards. And then he um, says, oh, but, you know, that's not a moral response. And so, you know, I am bad. For, mm. for having that uh, having that feeling. Yeah. Um, Which I think is is another mistake, you know, moralizing the mere experiencing of an emotion. And. Um, I mean, one of the things to. Um, yeah, that I, I just noticed there is uh, what happens immediately after that. Um, cause I mean, in effect, he feels contradictory feelings, you know, he feels, you know, the stab of regret and then a wave of self reproach for having 
had the feeling of regret. Mm-hmm. You know, so he's got two emotions, one following on the other, that are contradictory. And the right thing to do in a situation like that is to say, you know, that you know there must be a contradiction, you know, in my my thinking, in my psychology. Um, you know, where did that come from? You know, what is it? You know, what gave rise to my feeling that regret? What gave rise to my feeling self-reproach for the regret? You know, why? By what standards? You know, thinking it through. But what he does instead is shake his head and tell himself this is not the time for his old doubts, and then he simply moves on. Um, you know, he, in effect, refuses to think about it. Hmm even though his emotions are sending him signals that say, there's a problem here. You need to be thinking about this. Definitely. Yeah. Now I don't think he's, he's not refusing to think about it in a like Jim Taggart, you know, evading kind of sense. Um, but he is, he is not thinking about something that he should be thinking about. And it's going to cost him. He doesn't think about it because he thinks he doesn't think it's important compared to the other things that he has to deal with. I, I think that that's not evasion. It's perhaps an incorrect assignment of priority. Yeah, I mean, whether you consider it to be an error of thought. Um, you know, stemming from, you know, a sense of, uh, you know, different prioritization or an actual, you know, morally culpable refusal to think about something, um, you know, it's still going to have bad effects because, you know, his, his happiness depends on him thinking about this. And unless and until he does, he's going to be trapped. Definitely. Uh, here's another one. Oh, and, and uh, thank you. I think uh, we'll actually see that un unfolding as <laughs> as the book proceeds. Um, it, yeah, the tension's going to have to grow on that. Uh, why does Why does Hank think that he's won a victory over Lillian and Philip? Has he done so in fact? So I think we've we've, we've gestured to this a bit. Uh, 35.6 and 41.3 are the locations. Um, basically, I, what I recall of that is him considering their jabs and uh, that he, he could squash them. And he's choosing not to and, and tells himself that obviously they can tell he could have squashed them and chose not to. And so winning. Well, I, I, I think that once again, because he is not understanding their motivation. Mm -hmm. So he thinks by being magnanimous, he is showing them who he is and that they don't really have anything to worry about. Well, they know who he is. And what they're afraid of is that he's going to find out who he is. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. 
Uh, this is a, yeah, this intro to the family is, uh, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm remembering the future where, uh, boy, Lillian's a piece of work. <laughs> Damn. Uh, she, well, does she count as a villain? Maybe, maybe she, does she, not just a horrible well, character. She, she, no, she, she, she counts, she. She's not a world-destroying villain. She's a man-destroying villain. Still sounds kind so in of. In other words, her her moral culpability may not be as great as somebody who's out to ruin the world, but let's just say that she is pursuing evil up to the point of her capacity. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think there's a reasonable question about moral culpability. You know, compared to some of the people who have negative effects on the physical world on a much larger scale. I think Lillian has a much clearer understanding of what she's doing. Well, she makes it, well, not, in later chapters, she makes that explicit. Yes. Yep. And, well, no, and, I totally agree. Uh, but there is a, a little difference. Her victims have to have to let her do that. They have to go along with it in some way. They have to they have to hand her the weapon. I mean, Lillian is not using physical force. Mm-hmm. She's a moocher, not a, a loser. Psychological moocher. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but um, I don't think that there is a principle that says that um, you know using physical force you know, automatically makes you morally worse or more culpable than uh, someone who does not. I, I think um, torturing somebody psychologically is just as bad as, uh, it, it can be just as damaging. Yeah, well, I can mean, upside the head. Well, put the point this way. Um, like Ayn Rand thought Immanuel Kant was, you know, the most evil man in history. You, I thought she said he was the one that enabled the most evil in history. He, he also he did that. Himself the most evil. No, I think he, he also did that. But no, I'm, I'm pretty evil. sure that she said he was the most evil man but in he, history. He was a meek, and, mild uh, yeah, academic. Yeah. And he didn't Kant, pull a gun on anyone. Kant himself led, yeah, led a perfectly unexceptionable life in terms of you know initiating force against others. What he did was you know, ultimately empowered and enabled people who did go ahead and do that. And um, in the case of Lillian, what I, what I think, yes, her, her weapons are psychological, but what she's attacking is a uh, productive Titan. That's a big impact if she messes him up. Yeah. I guess what, what I'm saying is that I, I think you can definitely find characters in the um in the novel who are have a much larger physical impact on the world um you know directly you know in a bad way um but who have a much less clear or deep understanding of the nature of what they are doing uh like uh cuffy mygs mm -hmm. to, to skip ahead mm -hmm. right i mean you know that guy is you know he he's stealing you know 
shit from Tiger Transcontinental and yeah, he, selling it, you know, yeah, the, short short sighted, uh, you know, grifter yeah, or whatever. Yeah, the stuff he does, uh, you know, with Project X at the end of the novel, um, obviously has some very bad consequences. But yeah, psychologically, the guy is, you know, just, you know, a thug and a grifter who happens to wind up, you know, in an environment where there's no resistance to him. Um, and I think Lillian is a much more evil person than Mike's. No, agreed. You know, Mike's actions certainly killed more people. But I think Lillian's understanding of what she's doing makes her actions worse. More culpable. Yeah. Well, and, yeah. Uh, it, it, she's, you could think of um, the kind of crime she's committing, crime, quote unquote, she's committing uh, uh, psychologically as uh, the flip side of uh, somebody creating something wonderful psychologically or intellectually like an artist or a philosopher doing really good work. It's like, yeah, they're, they're not out there, you know, building a bridge, but they are fueling the people who build things. They're equipping the people who invent and on and on. It, it, uh, it, it has impact in, in reality. And, um, yeah, she, uh, that does add an extra, um, extra dark notes of, of nastiness when it's so knowing. Hmm. Well, I, I guess, I guess to a certain extent, she's kind of like Ellsworth Tui. Oh yeah. Ellsworth Tui was a conscious villain. Yeah. Well, so is, so is Lillian, as we find out later, she knows what she's doing. She's doing it to achieve a particular end. And in both cases, the end in question is the ultimate control of another individual. Um, what do we think of Jim through this lens? Brother Jim. Uh, he's, he's, an, uh, he's, he's a deliberately unconscious evil person. Yeah. So is it, is he, he's blocking it out. He's, he's remaining blissfully unaware of the horrible Not Blissfully, but unaware at any rate. He's, he's yeah. deadening himself. Yeah, I mean Jim yeah. Jim is or she a, savors it. <laughs> yeah, Jim is a is a looter of the material. Lillian is a looter of the spiritual. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that makes Lillian a more fundamental villain than Jim because um material values flow from spiritual ones. So the urge to loot the spiritual is more basic. Also, Carl, on the question of um, uh, Kant, um, I found uh, a quote from uh, Rand... Uh, brief summary in The Objectivist, uh, 1971, quote, Kant is the most evil man in mankind's history, unquote. That seems pretty unequivocal. 
<laughs> okay, well, no, the reason I was questioning oh, no. it was because uh, there was a, uh, Leonard Peikoff had said something to the effect that there was a distinction between what Kant enabled and the people who, you know, like the communists who killed millions of, you know, tens of millions of people in accord with what Kant enabled. And he had made something of a claim that the culpability level was different between the two. And he thought that the communists were more culpable, even if Kant was the enabler. Hmm. So, you know, I mean, we, we have we have dueling uh, authorities here. I, <laughs> I think a case can be made for both of them. I mean, if, if Kant hadn't done what he did, would He's, Lenin have done what he did? Yeah. Yes. Well, but, and I think the, yeah, the, the converse would be, you know, in effect, if if Lenin, you know, and Hitler at all had not done what they did, you know, and, you know, and no one else, you know, equivalent, you know, could have risen and done what they did, then would Kant's, you know, ideas have actually been that evil in effect. You know, it's, it's like one of the things that makes, you know, the thing that makes Kant evil is his knowing advocacy of evil ideas. And what makes those ideas evil is the effects that they have when other people practice them. Yeah. So there's a sense in which you can't really separate them. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, um, I ran across, uh, my, my brother gave me a, well, he gave all of us a, uh, an interesting book at the last family reunion. Um, I don't know if you know who Harry Jaffa was. Uh, I'm familiar or at least okay. aware. Yes. Uh, he's, he's, he's basically a conservative conservative and, and in one of the, in, in this particular book, he's on record as saying that he thought that Kant was one of the most evil people because he divorced morality from reality. <laughs> oh man. It's like, dude, <laughs> this guy's an apologist for your side. And you don't even know it. Okay. <sighs> well, his, his point was that. He, he considers himself an Aristotelian. He's dead now, but he considered, he considered himself an Aristotelian. And his problem with Kant was the, was the uh, categorical imperative. He said, one of the things that Aristotle said was that, that there, was, there was such a thing as prudence. And prudence was basically establishing the context in which the morality was being acted upon. And the categorical imperative made that impossible. That there was no way to tie the categorical imperative to the real world. And therefore, it was actually not a system of morality, but a system of immorality. And I thought that was interesting coming from a conservative. Mm -hmm. So, um, I don't know where I was yeah, going with that. Yeah. It, it is interesting. Right. Um, something I, I had a point. Yeah, so, something, something about that reasoning feels a little slippery to me, but I can't put my finger on it. Hmm. Well, I, I think I think what it comes where where we would say yes, you have principles, and yes, principles are objective. However, they also involve something called context. 
So where I, I and in the classic objectivist cases, yeah, you should tell the truth. That doesn't mean you tell the uh, the, 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 the policeman from yeah. the police state, the truth, you know, there's a, there's a reason there, there is a context in which telling the truth is pro survival and there is a context or pro flourishing and there is a context in which it is anti survival or anti flourishing. Yeah, well, I would actually, I think, put the point a little differently or maybe flesh something out, which is that when you're talking specifically about moral principles, Part of the context is that human beings are value-pursuing organisms and that moral principles at root are identifications of the all-things-considered long-range requirements and actions that lead to the successful pursuit of values. Um, and one of the problems that objectivists would have with the categorical imperative is that it severs moral principles from the value context. You don't do things because, you know, they allow you to obtain the values that sustain your life. You do things because the categorical imperative tells you to, period. Yeah, and I, I think Jaffa's... Uh, point is much the same in that his his argument is is that you have you have to tie it back to the real world now you're basically saying the same thing but you are giving it a longer scope and he's saying that it has to be it has to be put in a situation where it can be legitimately acted upon or it's useless so, I, uh, I, I, I mean, I, I agree with you that it feels like Jaffa's kind of grappling with the same sort of problem, but unsurprisingly, I think I prefer Rand's formulation. It's like, it, it feels like he's, he's not going deep enough or clear enough. No, but for a conservative to make that observation, I thought that was quite um, it's like, unusual. Because most conservatives consider morality to be intrinsic. And with his invocation of prudence, mm -hmm. it's no longer intrinsic. It's at least contextual. Yeah, although... You know, we talk about contextual certainty as an example. Yeah. You don't have to have perfect certainty. Yeah, although I do, I do wonder, you know, I see some conservatives in effect try to square that circle by, you know, making an argument like, you know, morality is intrinsic in the sense that it is, um, you know, the will of God. But it's also connected to, you know, being able to act on, you know, successfully or to a prudential context because God wants us to be able, you know, to, uh, you know, follow his will, right? God's not, yeah, I, God's not going to will us to do things that, you know, we can't put into practice. And, and so, you know, they, they try to square the circle that way by essentially, you know, saying, yeah, it's intrinsic, but it's intrinsic you know, from an, an entity that, 
you know, has this other goal in mind for us. So this was an intellectual biography of Jaffa. Uh, so obviously the person who put it together got, got to you know, pick and choose what went into it, but I never, I never saw him make, now I'm only three quarters of the way through the book, so I may find out later that he has in fact made that Yeah, I'm, I'm not necessarily attributing that to him. I'm saying I've seen other conservatives try to, you know, make arguments that, that look like that to me. Well, I'll have to keep that in mind as I, 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 I've been too busy with other things. I stopped reading it mid-November. Uh, I got it in... I got it at the end of, of May, and it was basically something that I would read when I was waiting for a customer. And so it wasn't something I sat down and read for hours at a time. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's like I, I don't know much of the details of uh, Jaffa's thought. It's just it's a name I've seen, but I don't think I've actually read anything by him. So. Well, so you're familiar with Leo Strauss, right? Um, somewhat, yes from uh, some okay, of Thompson's so, work. So Jaffa... Yeah, I, I, is, I know Jaffa was one of Strauss's students, I think. Oh, right. Okay. And he was uh, kind of an iconoclast in, in that... So the most, the, the most influential Straussians apparently are the East Coast Straussians. And Jaffa was a West Coast Straussian. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of like the rap battle, you know, East Coasters versus West Coasters. He actually wrote a book about it called A Strauss Divided Against Itself. Uh, <laughs> looping us back to, you know, title puns. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and he was also a uh, quite the scholar when it came to Abraham Lincoln and the founders. That was kind of where he, his specialty lie, uh, lay. But... Uh, um, I, I got the impression that, well, and, and he said as much, that the ills that we ascribe to the Straussian influence in the conservative movement come from the East Coast Straussians, and I don't think Jaffa would have been real happy about their influence in, 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 in the present conservative movement. Yeah, I, I can't say. Um, I do remember... Um, thinking, you know, when I was reading uh, Brad Thompson's book on neoconservatism and his discussion of Strauss, that uh, Strauss kind of reminded me of like the, you know, Ayn Rand's evil twin. Because, <laughs> you know, he was, you know, clearly a brilliant man. Um, he thought there was something deeply wrong with contemporary American culture yeah. he thought that the root of the problem was philosophical. He traced it, you know, all the way back to ancient Greece. You know, he was, um, you know, attracted a, um, you know, a circle of, you know, brilliant followers um, mm -hmm. who uh, set out to attempt to fix what they saw as wrong in American culture by reworking cultural philosophy. You know, it's like you can see parallels here on a lot of levels. Yeah, yeah. The thing is, at core, Strauss was a Platonist. Yeah. <laughs> and at core, Rand was an Aristotelian. 
Yeah. And see, that's I think that's where I think that's where Jotham might have parted ways with the rest of the group because he considered himself an Aristotelian. So. Um, yeah. It, it, if I had more time, I would do more reading. Wouldn't we all? Uh, but, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, true enough. Yes. Um, I, I think it would be interesting to pursue that. You're saying that Thompson uh, more or less made that comparison explicit? Um, do you remember the book he made it explicit in? Um, I mean, the discussion would have been in uh, neoconservatism uh, and obituary. Oh, okay. Um, didn't we do that? No, I don't think no. we ever did. I, I tried we to sell you guys it. on doing that book, but I don't think we ever did. Okay. Yeah. I know it came up at any rate. Pretty sure we read it or I heard a, uh, lectures that went into it. But yeah, we can do that sometime. See what he has to say. Anyway, do we have other stuff on the actual Atlas Shrugged? Oh, yes. Yeah, could, sorry. Yeah. The book, yes. Um, I think we've this this chapter, you know, didn't have an awful lot going on yet, uh, and we've chewed on all of the aspects of it. If you guys are okay with uh, putting a pin in that and waiting for the next one, we could. Yeah, I, uh, I, I didn't think so. I, the first chapter was very much setting up pieces, and this one is really still doing it. You know, yeah, she's still introducing you know major characters and you know their their situations yeah, we got dagny and her family we've got Hank, his family yeah um, it's like we, we we've yeah. got uh you know we're, we're we've got some agonists and we've got some uh some antagonists <laughs> yes you know here's 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 an interesting point and i'll, I'll call back to a previous book uh, this would be page 67 but it's just that a man of culture is bored with the alleged wonders of purely material ingenuity, she was saying. He simply refuses to get excited about plumbing. Now, the interesting thing is, is that I was going through some of my notes from a previous objectivism seminar when we were doing Enlightenment Now mm -hmm. from Steven Pinker. Mm -hmm. And he makes that exact same point about the anti-Enlightenment folks. It's that they denigrate material ingenuity. And not, and they are incapable of recognizing that it's that material ingenuity that gave them the capacity to ponder the non-material things that uh, they seem to find so important. Um, and I think he made a specific statement about iron pipe and keeping the affluence of a sewer away from your drinking water. Yeah. It seems to be a fairly important point. Yeah, or. Um... You know, I can't resist pointing out that whether those pesky material pipes are iron or lead makes a big difference. Mm -hmm. Well, particularly uh, on the in, on the intake side, on the output side, they might not be as big yeah, a deal. But on the intake side, yeah. and I'm, I'm thinking about the theory that the fall of Rome may have been uh, yeah. helped because along. Having the, them uh, makes a big difference, and having them be made of the right stuff makes a big difference. Yeah. Although I, I would also note the flip side, which is that you also can't divorce those material values from, you know, the, the spiritual or the abstract, you know, the conceptual, the mindful, yeah. um, 
there we're going to encounter a minor character later in Atlas, uh, the contractor Ben Neely, who says, you know, it's all muscles. Muscles. Yep. Um, well, think about it. Um, Snow, um, whose first name I forget, but the fellow who in, who inadvertently invented the science of epidemiology by tracking down the the one water source in London that was spreading cholera. Um, there was no germ theory of disease at that point in time, but this, the Thames was basically one big sewer. And he's the one that agitated for the concept that maybe it might be a good idea to keep you drinking water in your sewage. Separate, separated uh, to some extent. You know, if we're yeah. going to have sewers, at least put them downstream from where we're pulling the water in to drink. Yeah, <laughs> and, and yeah, it, yeah. We we take yeah. so much of the knowledge and conceptual machinery we've been handed down uh, for granted. <laughs> it's like we we look at that yeah. and go, uh, yeah, Yikes. yeah. Well, and in a, a very basic sense. Um, I think one of the things that sets the modern world apart from the ancient world is Francis Bacon's insight that knowledge is power. And that adage bridges the gap between sort of the abstract, you know, spiritual conceptual knowledge and material value in the concrete world. It says that if you want to create those material values in the concrete world, one of the things that makes you way more capable of doing that is abstract theoretical knowledge. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, so you cannot be concerned with material values to the exclusion of the spiritual, the abstract, the conceptual, but at the same time, you cannot be concerned with the latter and completely ignore the former because you are a material being who lives in a material world with material needs. Yeah. It's almost like you, you have to have that whole, <laughs> it, it, it's almost like mind, there's body, some kind unity. of yeah, unity some between mind there. and body. Yeah. Or mm -hmm. the purpose of thinking is to sustain your life. And yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. Um, you yeah. should try that someday. Just might work. Yeah. All right. So um, let's call uh, part one, chapter two done. Next time we can talk about chapter three, the top and the bottom.